80s Music Exposed, the podcast in which we review all of the best albums of the 80s, one month at a time. We will break them down, give you the skinny, and duke it out over whether or not you should dig these out again. So, if you're ready for an 80s music deep dive from Aha to Wham, Bowie to XTC, Madonna, Hair Metal, New Wave, and all points in between, then crank the boombox, turn your Walkman up to 10, and let's go! Hey, 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 welcome to 80s Music Exposed. We're back, and I'm Henry. I'm Chris. And I'm Megan. It seems like it's taken us a while to get back to the mics. Yeah, this is like the third episode in a row that you've started off by saying how long it's taken to get back to the mics. Are you going to edit that out? <laughs> no, no, I won't. People like consistency. I'm going to go ahead and They do. It. They value consistency. <laughs> uh, the, uh, I will say that the last episode we did is the most highly anticipated one. and We got the most numbers of that one than any of the others so far. Wow. Nice. Yes, I mean, they people really uh, are tuning in, and we really appreciate it, so thanks, guys. Thank you. We really do appreciate it. So, this is one of our classic album episodes. It is. Normally, we do like five album stuff, but this is the classic album ep. And what did we choose this time, guys? We chose... Well, I think it shows itself, but um, we are going to cover <laughs> Synchronicity by the police. And so we are, we are, I don't think we started doing this until 1982, but we're going to do four per year just by themselves. So this is one of the four, which is weird, Henry, because I, and, and Megan, I feel like some of the albums that we've covered, it's been easy to cover them by themselves. And then a couple of them, it's been really hard. Which were the hard ones, do you think? Um, it, so. For me, the Duran Duran album was hard. Mm-hmm. Um, the Nebraska album was easy. I thought oh, there was yeah. so much to talk about with that album, even though I didn't really know it that well. But I thought the Duran Duran one would be easy because I knew it so well, but it was, it was a little bit difficult. So I'm, I'm nervous because I, I know right. this album like, well. From beginning to end? Yeah. And then like, I'm you probably like, know every note, right? Yeah. So then I'm like, is this going to be a hard episode or an easy episode? So... How about you, Megan? Did you know this record from Soup to Nuts? Or oh yeah, this record. Um, I heard it for the first time probably when I was like fourteen or fifteen, mm-hmm. and I remember really, really loving it. Um, I just hadn't at that time really heard anything like it, and I mean the whole album, not just like every breath you take. Mm-hmm. Um, like I really love like Tea in the Sahara, like songs like that. So I thought it was super, super cool from a young age and it kind of got me into the police and um, 80s alternative really. So it was kind of a really big album for me, when I would I, say. When I first heard these songs, you know, I'd just gotten away from home. My parents had sent me to summer camp in Durham, North Carolina. And all of the all of the singles off this album were being played on MTV. It seems like every breath you take and and all those songs. So I didn't really li- think of the Police as an albums band until much later in my life. You know, I'm talking like probably my late teens, early twenties before I even put this thing on from beginning to end. Which is weird because the, most people don't when they think about. They say, oh, if you listen to Synchronicity from beginning to end, I was like, I feel like I have. I mean, I know all these five bleeding songs on here that made it to MTV. That's a lot, you know? too, the number of singles. But I had not. Yeah, I had not. So that was weird. 
For me, it was one of the first albums, I, and I guess, again, I um, was lucky enough to have an older brother, so I was into The Police by Ghost in the Machine, for sure, like as an album band. But this was like one of the last albums that my brother bought as an album as opposed to cassettes that started to take over. And I can just remember the colors, the artwork and the colors and all the pictures and the writing. It's one of those albums that you could sit and look at the album art the entire first time you listen to it. And I think there's something um, about that experience that makes it uh, even better. And, and I think that's something that people miss out on now. No doubt. That There's makes no it, doubt. and it almost makes you attached to the album. The, right, the a tactile lot more. experience right. of having that, being able to open that little. If you had the tape, you know, like opening the tape and it kind of creaking when you opened it, and it was a new, new, fresh, you know, plasticky thing that you carried around, and it mm-hmm. was something you could smack down in front of your friends. You should do this, you know. It just had a thing about it. Right. It, it, had, well, it felt very like artistic, and yes. maybe that's because I was like fourteen or fifteen at the time, but like. I was like, this is art. Yeah. Because it just looked so cool. I mean, even the photos, like, that's another yes. thing. Like, I remember, like, when I first got into records as a kid, that was something that I really enjoyed was, like, looking at the pictures and, like, all those parts of the album, which, like Chris said, is kind of missing now. <laughs> Let's put it in context, though, because the people, like, and I'm glad, Megan, you discovered it when you were 14, because I'm, I'm looking at the, it's 1983, I was 11. Mm-hmm. So we're right around the same age. And I can tell you, your experience is the exact same one I had, which makes me even more That's excited. Funny. Something about this album looks still to me like fresh, futuristic, it's new, its own thing. So they, these guys started out as uh, punk posers, basically, right? The double Three. One, wasn't it like the Wrigley gum or whatever? What's Wrigley that? spearmint gum. They did a commercial for it. Did they really? Now, time for our guest this week, and he's music manager, promoter, and label owner Miles Copeland. He helped guide the careers of the police and squeeze, amongst many others. You know, the police being blonde was an idea that really I didn't have, but when I saw it, I recognized that it was a kind of a unifying theme. It was done for a commercial they did for Wrigley's gum. So I think it was the openness of the police that was really encouraged me to think of ideas that would, you know, break the rules. And they were all, like, they all had their hair dyed blonde. So, I mean, you, so you got three guys, Sting, whose so, who's name is Gordon, by the way. And he was a school teacher. A school teacher. You ever, do you remember that Dana Carvey thing where he started making fun of Sting? No, I That's don't. my favorite bit he ever did. And he, goes, he, he starts imitating, like, pre-fame Sting. His real name, as you might know, is Gordon, and he changes it to Sting? Who's got the balls to tell their friends to call them Sting? At one point in his life, he had to remind people, excuse me, oh, excuse me, from now on, uh, would you mind calling me Sting? Fuck you! Yeah, my name's Bite. This is my buddy Scratch. Now get me a beer, Gordy. <laughs> Sorry, two cause lights coming right up. I'm gonna grow up and be a rock star. You see, wherever you go, I'll be watching you. I'll be watching you. What <laughs> <laughs> But you, uh, but you've got at the time you've got a school teacher who's closing on 
30 years old, yep. uh, who is a trained musician. You've got Andy Summers, who is cl- approaching 35 or 36 at this point, mm-hmm. and has been in bands since like the 60s. So he's like a... So you're saying Sting was old too? I know oh, older, older, not like not like uh, Andy Summers' age, but he actually was. He, he wasn't like a teenage uh, Sex Pistol guy. Andy mm-hmm. Summers had been through like the Clapton phase and the Hendrix, so he was not a punk at all. Mm-hmm. And then Stuart Copeland came at this from like a jazz background. They they openly jumped on the on the punk bandwagon just to try to make some money. If you notice too, I don't know if you guys noticed, until this album, most of what they did where they were trying to be punk, a, a lot of it was just mixed with reggae. Like, um, yeah. And I think they had a lot more respect for reggae, which was big in England um, at that time, than they did for punk. And, and of course, uh, if you watch the documentary about the police, that Stuart Copeland said they were always worried that they were going to get beat up or found out because they were playing too well <laughs> or... Their chord changes were too complex, or they were, you know, like they were posing. Miles da- Miles Copeland, right? So Miles Copeland's the guy that was the head of IRS and managed Sting, by the way, for most of his career, and he's the brother of Stewart. Doesn't hurt that you're right? your brother. I thought that was a record weird company yeah. to find to find out that you're the brother of the guy that was in your band that you hate. He managed him for most of his career. Yeah. <laughs> You know, that kind of, that's the dig of the old, you know, that's got to dig your heart out a little bit. But anyway, he said that the, that the police were an adaptation, which is why that they were successful in the U.S., was because in the U.K., punk was sort of an anti-music thing. And if, that if you knew how to play your instrument, what you said had less relevance to them, at least politically. But in the U.S., they were used to a certain level of like musicianship right. and all of that, right? And it, um, and it worked. They wanted something new, but not too new. So I thought that was interesting. That he thinks that's why they were successful. Yeah, and I, and I think I, I think it's interesting that a band can is smart enough and good enough that they can yeah they can cop it and do a, a decent job and, 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 and make hits from it. Let's be honest, MTV helped. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. Call your cable company and say, I want my MTV.
And let's also be honest, Sting was probably the, the most photogenic guy you've ever seen. Well, that, yeah. so yeah, there's a couple things here, like with the with the Miles Copeland connection, and mm-hmm. then on top of that, uh, Sting, the way Sting looked, I think all of that. Uh, I mean, so right before right before the Synchronicity album comes out, he has just been cast in the in the big David Lynch Dune movie. Yes. Where he had to dye his hair like red. Right at this time. Yeah. yeah. So like in all the videos, his hair looks weird for the time now. We just think that's the way they looked. But that was all because of the movie. Yeah. So yeah, he's more than just and I think I think that is a big part of I guess if we if we if we want to talk about it now, I don't think he and Stuart Copeland actually hated each other that much. I think neither one of them was willing to admit to the other one that they were really good. Um, it was like a pissing contest, and so Sting's ego you know, was getting yeah was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And Stuart Copeland was like, "I'm like you know every kid in America has me second or third on the greatest drummers of rock. So you you must acknowledge me, Sting, as an equal." And Sting was like, "Fuck off." You know, they, they, I think it was more right. that I think they actually liked each other a lot. <laughs> well, what I read, and I don't know. How true this or what they said was they you know they recorded this record in Montserrat right and that everybody had their own villa. Stuart Copeland said the minute they would get together it was like this drudge of awfulness. In 1982, their collective wealth enabled the three members to fly to a Caribbean paradise to record their next album. Little did they know it would be their last. Montserrat is just unbelievably idyllic. Each member of the band had a little villa with a swimming pool and house staff and just views out over this unbelievable scenery. And every morning we would wake up to the sun coming over the volcano and uh, we would be whistling a happy tune as we drove up to the Air Studios, which was a big, huge estate where George Martin had built this unbelievable studio. Um, Once we got to the studio... Things kind of went downhill from there. <laughs> the, the happy tune that we'd, we'd be whistling as we came up the hill would turn into a dark, bitter dirge. And it was because of the two of them. Like, if you, if you, if you read the books and watch the documentary, Andy Summers got along with both of them. But if you I got, wondered about that. Yes, like, he didn't have the ego. Andy but if Summers you, is the Ringo. Yeah, he was. He was just like... He's just happy to be there. Yeah, well, he was, Andy and Summers he had, did later have some shitty things to say about Sting. And I'm sure he was bitter because Andy Summers had worked his whole fucking life since the 60s to mm-hmm. be in a hit band. And he finally gets in the biggest band in the world at this point, and they break up because two douchebags can't... Right. Like, yeah, honestly, on. like stories like that are really fucking annoying, and it kind of it does make me as an adult. Like when I was younger, I didn't view stories like that as negatively. Like I would be like, oh, they just they were they had creative differences. Like they were just being artistic and trying to express themselves. Now as an adult, almost thirty, it's like get your shit together and just get along like get over yourselves it's yeah. so dumb like, yeah it's it's very like it's closer to the oasis brothers than it is to like creative um, differences it's just like the two of them sit there and one calls the other one an asshole and they just can't let it go but they from what i understood like their band was not the kind that you could just kick somebody out because it's andy summers it yeah. it's Stuart copeland right you can't just kick one of the three out and so they said that was the most anti-democratic democratic band there was because <laughs> you got one guy who who is the golden goose. This one dude in the band is the golden goose that brings all the hits. Yeah, like and songwriting wise, that's fact. that is a fact. But like if you if like Andy Summers is one of the most like 
individualistic style guitar player. Like, if you listen to the guitar on this, it's not, it's like nothing else going. It's like closer to like Robert Fripp and Brian Eno stuff on a pop record. And they're all great. Yeah. And Stuart Copeland, I mean, come on. That dude's style was like all his own. So, Yes, Sting brought the songs. All Sting had to do was acknowledge the other two. That was the thing that he couldn't bring himself to do. He couldn't... The only way he tried to acknowledge them, and it's clear on this album, is he said, okay, if I'm not the hit guy, if I'm not making all the songs, you guys make a song each, fine. And he wouldn't even play on Mother. He wouldn't, like... He played the oboe. But it's like but he's he could, gonna he's gonna he, spike an album just to show the two of them that he's the he best. He could have been a team player and agreed to sing on Mother and make it better. Okay, right. right. But instead, he had to let the worst singer in the band sing this just to kind of make it sound like fucking Frank Zappa or something. Well, and it's you not know? even not it's so, not even that different from some of the songs on their first couple albums that Sting sings when they're yeah. trying to be punk. So it's not like it's that crazy for them. But it is kind of shitty of Sting just to be like, yeah, we're gonna put. Two crappy al- songs on an all-time great album just to show these guys that I'm the king. You're talking about I'm Miss, the boss. Miss Grinko. Miss Grinko, yeah. Grinko. Which I actually like, Miss Grinko. your point it's like he, he almost did it as a just to say okay see yes it, it reminds me of that the album, the man. like there are not a lot of songs on this album so i mean when you talk about filler mm-hmm. if you want to consider those songs filler that's not much that's like that's not much fat compared took, to I thought it took, some albums we've it, talked about oh, jesus uh, christ well megan what'd you think about him putting it on the first half though yeah, I mean, you can definitely, I will agree that there are some filler songs. Like, not every song on here is great. It's not like, I guess, Born in the USA is kind of one of those albums where almost every song is great. This album, the the singles, you know, and well, like Tea in the Sahara. So let's, I don't, think that's don't most people front load the record, though, with the hits? Yeah, most people. I mean, not that's these, kind of the, usually these. at that time. Yeah, and let's, I think it's interesting, especially I noticed this going back. This is basically a tale of two halves. You've got an, yes. you've maybe got an all time great beast, uh, side two to this album. Every breath you take, King of Pain, Wrapped Around Your Fingers, Tea in the Sahara, and Murder by Numbers. That is like 
maybe the best side of the 80s, in my opinion. The front half, you've got Synchronicity 1, which is a good song, in my opinion. I like Miss Grodinko, and Synchronicity 2 is fine. I actually think Walking in Your Footsteps, which is a Sting song, is the worst song on the album. I don't it's even know. It's kind of cheesy. It's got like a pan flute. It sounds like it belongs in the land before time. Like it should be the A side should be the B side and the B side yes, should be the A side. I guess that's what I'm trying to tell you. Do you think they did that on Is, purpose? I think they definitely put all those songs yes. together on purpose, but I don't I'm know say. what the argument was for making that the B side. Unless they were I just like, like that's like a very sting thing to do. Probably, I don't know why He's just so self assured. That's at, totally like all right, all right, so yes. all right, so synchronicity too. All right, you think it's just okay. I love that song. Like, I, no, I, I, I don't it think it's the just most rockiest. Really I know that it's the most straight ahead rockiest song on the record. If you look at Sting's face in the video, he is the most self assured, cocky motherfucker you've ever seen in your life. Like staring at the camera, smirking. It was it was all about him, and he knew it. I don't know that I don't I don't know that I can fault him for that because isn't that kind of what we want our rock stars to be like? I mean, I'm not uh, anyway. I mean, I think that really any front man has to be that way a little bit. Like, I I don't think it's really a thing. By the way, I want to clarify, and this is not me. This is Thomas Erlwine of All Music. Uh, He says Mm -hmm. that Synchronicity 2, the song, sounds disarmingly like a crappy Billy Idol song. Oof. Ouch. I liked it. I liked it, too. I, was all I, I do over. see some similarities to the Billy. I like. I can. I kind of get where he's coming from, but also that dude's a douche. That kind of hurt. I Tom like. I like. Might. I like Billy Idol's albums at this point in time. No, so, I do. Yeah, yeah like, so I like I'm. I'm okay too. with that.
And yeah, I guess it's kind of a sting thing, but like he had the goods on this album, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, shit, that second half is great. Um, it's better than anything that's going to come out on fucking Dream of the Blue Turtles or t- <laughs> 10 fucking Summoner's Tales, which, my God. No, that, he's great. I mean, like, he has good, the talent and everything to back it up, and hit, and, but that does not mean that he isn't, like, a pretentious, yeah. terrible asshole and, to be around, and, I'm sure. And, you know, like, he's not humble. When you literally break up a band when it becomes the biggest band in the world just because of that it is that's that is a tough and i'm sure sting thought my solo career will just be a continuation of this because i'm i'm the whole thing Mm. right so yeah it just didn't didn't work out that way but um so yeah so let's uh let's talk about I, i don't know if we've given the videos their full due yet so i know that most i think all of the videos from the sound were were directed by Godly and Cream. I think so. I didn't see any that weren't. Megan, do you remember that video? I, I, I should have looked up the name of it. Henry, you, you'll know. The, the first Godly and Cream video was for this band. I think the out the song was called Cry, and it was where it showed people's faces and they would meld into other people's faces. And like for the time, the technology, it was like, holy crap. Cry. Uh, they actually were the song, I think. I think they were actually. Yeah, the, they did. Yeah, they did the song. was a hit in the 80s i've never heard it i think it was their only hit but they were the video they were very famous for that so um anyway i felt like the videos all had a particular style but then do you think they did or do you think they each had their own thing because i know synchronicity too had the wind blown sting riding a scaffolding or some something. so you're at, you're asking do you think all the videos on it had a theme or just kind of a, a look like when i heard that godly and cream directed all of them i was kind of shocked because i think king of pain looks like its own thing and then of course every breath you take i think the video is more iconic than the song even i don't know i feel like everybody knows that song like Mm -hmm. everybody knows like even people Mm -hmm. younger than me know um every breath you take but i don't know if now they would associate the video with it like maybe people in my probably my age group would but now I don't know if people watch music videos, especially like older music videos anymore. Right. Sting said that he wrote this thing on the piano and knew that it was a hit from the jump and said that the other members of the band, he he called them members of the band, which I thought was weird. Like 
the other such member, a dick. member. He's such a he's so, removing himself so much from the con- you the know other their names. members of the band. Like Chris would say, <laughs> if Chris and I were working on something, he'd say Henry didn't like this. I w- I wouldn't just say the other guy didn't like or <laughs> oh, the other very, members of the band. Insulting, you know. Anyway, I, I don't know if that would stand out to anybody but me, but. He, they called it sim, simplistic. He said there was bitter contention all over that particular song, and that him mm-hmm. and and him and Stuart Copeland came to blows of the damn thing because there wasn't anything for him to do. I, I, I agree, but I think they probably came to blows over a lot of stuff. So that was just one of many. But yeah, you're right. Like I, I but that, it requires but straight ahead. Beat. But can we do this as well? Give Sting a little bit of a break. Stuart Copeland's ego is. I mean. The reason he didn't He's like every it. breath you take, which is a mm-hmm. is a fucking because he didn't have anything because he didn't have anything to do. So like, fuck it, this is a shit song, right? Because so, I don't have anything to do. He's always thinking, "Hey, Sting, remember this was my band. I invited you to join it." See that right there? See that right there? That whole like, he this is my band. That's what he's. Thinking. I know, but you you see, like, it's like he just needs to be acknowledged by Sting, and Sting just needs. Right. Be acknowledged by him. Right. They just needed a therapist. They needed that Metallica guy, the yes. same kind of monster guy. Oh my god! Can we talk about how that made well, you and feel? At the core, right. the uh-huh. whole reason, and this is what's like extremely frustrating and juvenile about a situation like that, is at the end of the day, it's just because Sting was prettier and got mm-hmm. more girls. some more stuff about every breath you take they put the entire song together. the whole song was put together from overdubs it is considered one of the famous most famous songs in all of music history it's crazy in 2010 it was estimated to generate between a quarter and a third of sting's mu- music publishing income it is the most played song in radio history and also yeah. if, if, if yes. you don't know this he did write um if you love somebody, set them free as a direct response free, free, to this song because he said this song made him feel so bad because it's a stalker song.
I mean, I guess I only hear... So my biggest problem always with Sting has always been, I think he overrates himself, because his lyrics to me are just kind of like so on the nose sometimes. Uh-huh. Hey, mighty brontosaurus, don't you have a lesson for us? I mean, that's not Shakespeare, right? That's just no, kind of... No, he's not a visionary, and I feel like he kind of like thinks of himself as one, perhaps. Yeah, the guy, Again, the guy put I don't out, know what he thinks. I know, but. he put out a book of his own by Sting called Lyrics <laughs> in which he goes and explains I guess he's going to tell us who Scylla and Charybdis is thank you man <laughs> you're going to tell me who I'm Mephistopheles so is thank you very much <laughs> oh, just could, like the old man in that famous book by <laughs> Nabokov hey who's Nabokov hey. I guess I better look that up too Sting Hey folks, I'm going to interrupt for a second here. If you're a podcast junkie like I am, you probably thought about starting your own as well. I can tell you firsthand that starting a podcast is one of the best decisions we've ever made, but it can feel overwhelming if you don't know how to get started. And that's why I was really glad to find Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way I've ever found to launch a professional, or in our case, a semi-amateur professional podcast. These folks have helped over 100,000 people launch their own podcasts. Spotify will get your podcast into every major podcasting platform like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and uh, more than that. You'll also get a great-looking podcast website. Audio players that can help drop the audio into other websites. Detailed analytics so that you see how people are listening. I can see all of you out there. Tools to promote your episodes and on and on. Buzzsprout publishes new blog posts on all kinds of topics like equipment and formats, podcast episodes, and there's YouTube videos every week so you can learn the ins and outs and form podcasting from the people that eat, drink, and breathe this stuff. And you never really feel like you're on your own. And that's been real helpful for us. So to start your own podcast and get a $20 Amazon gift card, go and grab the link that I've got for you in the show notes. This lets Buzzsprout know that we sent you and it helps support the show. Remember, Buzzsprout, the easiest way to start a podcast. Also, I, also I, if I'm going to, another thing that's always bothered me about Sting, like when he puts old songs of his in the chorus of new songs, like all of a sudden, I never he just, noticed he did that. I guess yeah, so. he just starts playing like, but he's got "Don't Stand So Close to Me" just pops up two or three times later on. Oh really? Uh, and yeah, just to be like one of those guys that it's like, see, every song's just one song. I hate that shit. And they're all connected, man. They're all connected. Yeah, synchronicity. Right, from my right, deep right. Inner soul. They're <laughs> right. all connected. It's an ant. These are some answer songs, man. Yeah. Listening this time, I really have to say that first half bothered me a lot more than it did <laughs> when I was younger. Back then. Like it's almost like I don't know that I can say this is like the best 
two sides of a police record. The second side's so fucking good, you can't even. I'm glad. I'm glad they didn't front load it. I'm glad they See, made I'm... me suffer through the first half so that they could get get me to the meat. So that you'd listen to it right by the end. Well, and I don't think that it is their best album in terms of like actual material. I think it's when they reached their zenith. Like I think this is like yeah. peak police in terms of just everything coming together, even though they all fucking hated each other at the time, but whatever. Um so I don't think that it is the best, but it kind of is the best in that way. Not necessarily material-wise, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And at the time, I, I, we can't overstate this, and I think um, concerts at that time. So mm-hmm. when, it wasn't like every band, because travel was different. It wasn't like every band then did a world tour. Like, to get to world tour status... It it's a meant, big deal. It, yeah, like, like you got the T-shirt, not because you wanted to buy just the T-shirt. It was like they named the world tour, like the police, whatever, world tour, because you were like... I want to remember that I was at that world tour. Now everybody is like, who gives a shit? But I remember I thinking... Know. I feel like it's still a big deal. Yeah, I mean, it's a big tour. deal, but it's not... Like, then it was like, you had to be like Elton John or the police or the Rolling True. Stones. It wasn't just like Quiet Riot was going on a world tour. They were going on a Midwest tour or whatever, you know, yeah. which is great. Hey, don't insult us. Please. I know, I know. I know, I know. <laughs> or the Southeast, I'm sorry. Uh, but... I remember that summer, and Henry, you probably do too. Like I, that was all part of it. The videos were out. This yes. album was out, and it was like, oh my god, they're coming to Knoxville. Was the closest to me, so they're playing a stadium, and it was like a thing. And I, I really remember at the time going, there can't be a bigger band in the world. Like, and they were my favorite band. You know, it was like your favorite band all of a sudden became the biggest band in the world. God, that's got to be three a period. guys. I've never known what that feeling right, like. Right, right. It's just like, holy <laughs> shit. Three dudes. Just three of them. Mm-hmm. Right. And by the way, this record was, I don't know if you noticed, but it's its a little sparse. Like it's uh, Very sparse. Especially they, compared to Ghost in the Machine, too. Yeah. Three dudes packed Shea Stadium. 70,000 people. Imagine. Imagine going out there with your two friends and being like 70,000 people. And it did shock me. I went back and watched one of the live concerts that's on YouTube. Yeah. It's the three dudes with three backup singers because Andy Summers and Stuart Copeland can't sing. Mm-hmm. So I thought there was going to be a bunch of musicians with them. Nope, it's three dudes. There's a little black spot on the sun today.
Also, I, I noticed on Wikipedia they said that Murder by Numbers was a bonus track. It was on the, the version. Why are I they had. saying that? Because, because I, I heard, had it. I heard it too. I thought yeah. it was a bonus song. It was always on every version I owned. And I love that song because it's it's so like darkly it's upbeat but it's dark and i just love somebody singing as a kid i just thought it was so subversive to mm. sing about how easy it is to murder people jimmy swaggart said that the song was performed by the sons of satan <laughs> and in 88 a few years later after that he was involved in a sex scandal <laughs> i have sinned against you my lord And I would ask that your precious blood would wash and cleanse every stain until it is in the seas of God's forgetfulness. I, when I was younger, I really, I thought that the song was actually about murder. Right. Murder by numbers, like right. a guy doing that. But it wasn't until later on that I listened that I realized it was allegorical. It was about something else, about politics, Um, politicians, really. Once that you've decided on a killing, first you make a stone of your heart. And if you find that your hands are still willing, you can turn a murder into art There really isn't any for bloodshed Just do it with a little more finesse If you can slip a tablet into someone's coffin I did want to mention uh, Wrapped Around Your Finger, at least. I know I said earlier about what Andy Summers was going to say about Wrapped Around Your Finger. He said that he was kind of pissed off about that because he was. He says he's never been a fan of that song particularly. He said Sting got to shoot his part last. You know, he, I don't know if you remember, but they had Andy Summers skipping around in a, playing an acoustic guitar. It's not even on the song, but he just it was just part of the imagery or whatever. Um, but uh, Sting said he made a meal out of knocking all those candles down, so fuck him. Apparently, that was considered, like, to them to be, like, this aggressive move, that it wasn't part of the script, you know, for him to knock the candles down. And I was like, that's the most badass moment of the whole thing. But he knew that it was going to be the most badass moment. <laughs> I know. Right? And, and so Andy Summers just got done jumping around like a little pixie with an acoustic guitar because they told him to, and then Sting goes in and does what he wants to do, uh-huh. and it becomes iconic.
But look at what happened. 18 years passed before those guys ever played together again. There was well, such they, bad blood. They, they did try in 86 to um, do a follow-up album. Did they? And they lasted about uh, two days, and they, they, they did a cover of their own song, um, which they, they did released. did a new version of it. Yeah, they did a new version. And of um don't stand, don't stand so, so close, close to, to me. me which they put on the greatest or the compilation thing the reason that was all that they did was they were already in fist fight the two of them were already in a fist fight by the time they finished that first song which was already done which was just a if you if you hear it it's not it's not that different like they just kind of redid it a little bit but it's more like 80s sounding like late 80s sounding yeah you know yeah yeah it almost has that like when people just discovered remixing it sounds yeah. like that <laughs> kind oh, of I mean, thing i like it but especially because i remember i, I yeah. remember just the way that that greatest hits album looked because like my dad had that cd it was right. black yep. and it had like their picture on it and they're kind of in shadow mm-hmm. and they have like all the font is in the uh red yellow and blue yep. like the synchronicity colors so i remember hearing that song and i always wondered i'm like why did they cover their own song yeah and, and i think i think they were do- I figured it out. yeah and i think they were doing it too to like um just get warmed up because they were planning to make a record like they they acknowledged like we can't leave on synchronicity like we've got and um andy summer said he always thought they would end up just taking two years off letting those two cool out they'd see they'd see what they had sting could do his solo record and they would come back and he was like they literally got in the room together and it was like fuck you fuck you no fuck you and bam 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 and, oh, what? and, like, andy, what was the and andy summers knew what do you think man the guy's an egomaniac he's insufferable to work with yeah. It doesn't matter how good the output is if you just simply can't like be in the same room with the guy because his ego just pushes you to the fucking wall. Then you know what do you do? Yeah, it yeah. was, it, and it is sad. I think for people like for fans because I would love to have heard what another album would have sounded like. Mm-hmm. There's plenty oh, of yeah. bands that I like that have get, given us too many albums, but yeah. Um, there, there is something though about I don't know what you guys think about this, but there is something about would this album be revered the way it is if there had been more police records? Like, mm-hmm. like no, no, this, they quit it, at the perfect time. Quitting on top mm-hmm. have something to do with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think probably it's added to the mythos a little bit, you know. But um, I don't know. I don't know how many people know the history of the band mm-hmm. as much right. either. Right. But you're right. Like if you're if you're in a three piece band that you've been around for eleven years and you're calling the guitarist the guitarist and he's not even the guy you don't like. Yeah, for real. Yeah, I mean you must be a supreme fucking asshole. <laughs> well, we gotta we gotta title this episode Supreme Asshole. Synchronicity well, dash Sting is an asshole. Sting being an asshole. I'll put it in the and I'm like, you know, he is so I'm gonna put it in the title of it and see if anybody see how many hits we get. I mean, we like him. Like, I cannot make this clear enough. Like, I do like Sting. Not really his solo stuff, but like as an artist, I really do like him. Like, I don't hate him, even though it sounds like I do. Yes. Well, I wanted to. I wanted to kind of wrap up um, with everybody giving their own individual thought, and then maybe talk about their favorite song. I think Megan, you, why don't you go first and just give us your overall thoughts on the album and 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 let's just all not jump on sting we got it okay no i mean 
this, like I said before, I mean, this album was huge for me. I think it was probably one of the first few albums that I got on vinyl because I liked it so much. Um, I probably found uh, the CD version first because my dad always had a bunch of CDs. So um, then I got the record itself. And I remember listening to it on my record player in my bedroom and just being blown away by it. So and of course, at the time, I thought, you know, Sting was very cute. I always thought Stuart Copeland was cute, too. Oh, did you? So I mean, yeah, so there you go, Stu. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Stu. Finally, somebody's batting for you. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a very special album for me. And it, it got me into a lot of uh, alternative music that maybe I wouldn't have uh, dipped my toe into if it wouldn't have been for this album. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna say along the same lines uh, that yeah, I think it might have been my gateway album for getting more and more um off the mainstream grid it made it okay even though it was at the time the biggest album in the world which is kind of weird um, it happens occasionally yeah and it, honestly it reminds me a lot of a band that uh i read that when bono there was a meeting between bono and sting at the grammys oh my god can you yeah, imagine and it was almost like handing off the torch but the joshua tree was the other one for me that was like that's the biggest album in the world but it sounds like an it should be an indie rock album mm-hmm. or whatever so yeah, it had a lot of that to go along with it for me as well. I would say as a person trying to uh, tell our listeners what, if, if you haven't heard it or you haven't gone back and listened to it in a long time, um, it's definitely worth going back and checking out. I will say the first side, I, I'd never noticed it as a kid, but I, I don't know that the first side is as good as the second side. No, but that that's just like having dessert at the end. Like it's a good first side. So you, and then the second side's just going to make you like stop the pull the car over and want to finish it. So I can't say enough about the artwork, the videos, everything about it worked. And uh, probably it was best that they broke up uh, when they did. So I'm not going to begrudge that. I'm just going to I'm going to be happy with the memory of that. This record will always exist at a confluence in my life where things it was like a a true north about what cool should look like what are cool guys like right what are they like what are guys who are in in command of their own like image and you know stuff look like i was just an awkward kid you know looking at up these guys who just seemed so grown up and awesome and also mystery you know uh scylla and charybdis what the fuck is that miss fistopheles yeah, this is some next level shit. Like he's he's singing about something that must mean something. And along with all of that was all the videos. Um so that resonates really hard with me. So every every time I listen to the record, all that imagery will always float through my head. I'll always remember how I felt as a as a, a young teen a you know, twelve year old boy, you know. Because this, 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 like he like stuck a pin in what it feels like to be that kind of weird and desperate feeling to me as an adolescent. And so when I go back there, I'll always, uh, it's, it's magic, if that makes any sense. And that never went away. And as, as crappy as I might think Sting might have been or whatever, that, that record will never not be that for me. So that's how I feel about this record. There is something magical, I think, about this record. Yeah, you can't, it's not really even in the notes. I don't even know how to describe it, but there's some some aura about it. I think it has to do with the ethereal stuff that that Andy Summers did that wasn't, didn't bang you over the head. It was just mm-hmm. right. You know, it, it resonated in, a, in an emotional way on the album, despite the trauma or whatever they were going through to put it together. So. All right, so I think if unless it's somebody else's, unless we've, 
not covered every part of how shitty Sting is as a person, I think. That's synchronicity. That's it. So we uh, knocked well, it we out. We also said how much we love the album. We did. We did. Guys, I don't have um, the notes or anything for how we normally shut it down, so I need to try to get a hold of that before I do. You know what? Why don't we just give our listeners a break this time from how we normally shut it down and just say thank you for all the people yeah, that listen to the We to the really show. do appreciate it. The last episode we did, uh, I'm so amazed that people... Uh, that people liked it so much. We want to thank everybody across the world that listens to what we do. We put a lot of work into trying to learn and know and understand records that are not, you know, that are not always in our wheelhouse. Like this one happens to be in our wheelhouse, but we yeah, they're not to, always synchronicity. <clears throat> right. We're aware of other podcasts that are more corporate that, you know, sort of do a lot of name dropping and kind of know seemed like they know all these people and have all kinds of access to money and all of this stuff. But we do this out of the love of the music, and we appreciate people noticing that. So thanks a lot. We're on Twitter. Look at us up. We have an email address. Just Google us, and you can find us. So thanks a lot, guys. Yep. And we'll see everybody for uh, March of 1983 next time around. Guys, guess what? What's that? I made you a mixtape. Have one wish before we die And it may sound strange As if our minds are deranged Please don't ask us why Beneath the sheltering sky We have this strange obsession You have the means in your possession Seeing the Sahara with you With you, the young man agreed he would satisfy their need. So they danced for his pleasure with a joy you could not measure. They wait for him here, the same place every year, beneath the sheltering sky. Across the desert here.